Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Some 180 countries are endorsing what is known as the Global Compact for Migration. The text of this non-binding agreement was finalized over the summer, and countries are meeting in Marrakesh, Morocco on December 10th and 11th to formally launch the compact. There is a great deal of misinformation being spread, mostly by right-wing governments in Europe and here in the United States, about what this agreement entails. The agreement is not a treaty. Rather, it is an agreed set of principles and creates a kind of platform for multilateral and bilateral cooperations around issues of international migration, excluding issues pertaining to refugees. This is not about refugees. This is about regular and irregular migration. On the line with me to explain the Global Compact for Migration, better known around the UN as GCM, is Alice Thomas of Refugees International. I caught up with Alice Thomas from Marrakesh, where she was participating in civil society forums around the compact. We discuss both the content of the GCM and its potential impact on destination countries, origin countries, and migrants themselves. We also discuss the impact of the non-participation of a few countries in this compact, and that includes the United States and several countries in Europe. If you have 20 minutes and want a primer on the Global Compact on Migration, then I think you will very much appreciate this conversation. And before we begin, as always, feel free to reach out to me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you guys. If there is a topic you want me to cover or an individual you want me to interview, uh, send them my way. I, I do this podcast for you guys, so I'm always interested in learning what is on your mind. And now here is my conversation with Alice Thomas of Refugees International. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It's, it's a mixed mood. I mean, on the one hand, there is a lot of excitement about what has been accomplished. And, you know, as the first ever intergovernmentally agreed um, compact to address migration in all of its forms to try to address all of its challenges. It's a really, really significant breakthrough that we have this document. Um, there obviously has been some disappointment around the fact that some countries have indicated that they are dropping out or they may drop out. But generally, I think the mood is very upbeat because 
you know, more than, you know, 109, you know, 180 countries are going to, are, are going to endorse this agreement on Tuesday. And the fact that a handful of countries for largely, um, you know, political reasons are not going to come along, uh, are not going to endorse um, doesn't mean that the compact is not going to get endorsed and is not going to have um, a lot of buy-in from a lot of countries that really are looking um, to it to start setting the pathways for um, for how to deal with this issue. So, so it's I, really important. Yeah. Well, I, I want to talk about the impact of the sort of non-participating countries, those in Europe and, and the United States in, in a little bit. But, bef- but before we get there, uh, let's just sort of talk about the substance of, of the agreement itself and even maybe take a, a step back from that and talk about what we mean by migration. So last year, um, uh, you know, the UN adopted, well, 2016, the UN adopted the New York Declaration um, on Refugees and Migrants, which was a, a universally endorsed way to deal with both large movements of refugees and large movements of migrants, particularly those in vulnerable situations. And it called for the development of two different compacts, one for refugees and the other um, for safe, regular, orderly migration. So what's happening this week is where um, governments will be endorsing the Global Compact for Migration. Um, and that's an outcome of you know an 18-month process by which the compact was development was developed through an intergovernmental process. And so what does the migration compact state? So it's um the, the the compact consists of a set of 23 non-binding objectives that cover all phases of migration. So it covers everything from, you know, what are the drivers of unsafe, irregular, and disorderly migration, um, including, you know, all kinds of factors at home that are driving people to migrate. So War that it's, or cl- climate change, you name it. Yeah, I mean, it's significant in some ways that the fact it does include climate change, it does list climate change and natural disasters as drivers of unsafe or irregular migration. And that in and of itself was a huge accomplishment because that's the first time we've had in um, a, a document like this, which is, you know, under the auspices of the UN that was actually drafted by governments themselves that actually starts to say, you know, we need to address climate change as a driver of migration. But it also includes a lot of other drivers. Um, but 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 the compact takes us from, from root causes all the way across the spectrum um, to other important things, including, um, you know, the need to improve border management, the need to combat trafficking, um, the need to ensure that people who are returning to their home countries are, are allowed to do so, you know, in, in a safe manner. Um, so it covers all aspects of migration. So it's incredibly comprehensive. So if all these 23 points are sort of non-binding, right? This is a political document. It's not a, a treaty and it's sort of strenuously not a, a treaty. That's the way exactly. um, you know, so many governments ha- have agreed to participate. Um, like what's, what's the point then? Like what, what if, you know, five years from now, governments are implementing much of these uh, 23 points, what would be different than what is today? Can you give me like a, maybe like a specific example as, as possible? Well, I think of a, a simple example is just an agreement that um, 
first of all, that there these cha- the challenges of migration cannot be met unless governments are cooperating on a bilateral or multilevel multilateral level. So if I don't, if I'm a country, um, you know, uh, that's a that's a country of origin, um, I need to cooperate with countries that are destination countries in order to address my own, you know, nationals as they migrate to accept them when they're returning. Um, There needs to be international cooperation around this. Um, The problem with not signing on to this or endorsing it is that you assume that you can set your own national policies and that you're going to that way solve the challenges of international migration. But that is not what that is not the, the case or the reality. It's an issue. It's a, these are global, um, regional, bilateral issues. They're not just national issues. So that's really important. This sets up a roadmap to allow governments around the world to figure out kind of, you know, including migration that occurs from South to South countries. So most migration occurs from countries in the South to, you know, from two countries in the South. Those countries need more bilateral arrangements on how to, how to um, ensure their, you know, again, that, that migration is safe, orderly, and regular. So, I so think like what, really- like, like, like what would be an example of that? Like what, well, for example, if you're going from, I don't know, I'm looking like, like Cameroon to Nigeria, I'm looking at a map right now. Like what, what, um, problem would this, would this help solve? Is there any, like, yeah, I mean, there's things like, for instance, there's a commitment to provide migrants with legal documents. So a lot of times, um, you know, host country, co- I mean, countries of origin, you know, a country might not ensure that its own citizens have legal documents. Um, and it might not. Um, and then when those when those uh, migrants arrive in another country, they don't have proper documentation and they can't exercise their rights. So there's a commitment in there, which is, you know, we agree that we think migrants need documentation. Um, if migrants don't have the correct mi- uh, documentation, they can't access their rights. Um, and often they can be, re- you know, they can be misidentified, honestly. So so that's that's an example of something. There's an agreement that, you know, there are certain migrants that are um, in situations of vulnerability, like like child migrants that are unaccompanied. And there is a common sense among you know states that we need to recognize other human rights instruments to which we've actually ratified that are binding about the the rights of the child, um, rights around family unification, um, you know, people who are being trafficked. Um, so the compact reinforces the need for countries to, when they're dealing with migration, to recognize, you know, we need to start having policies and plans around people that are in really vulnerable situations. And I think that's particularly important because of what we've seen happen so tragically, you know, in the Mediterranean and in the Sahara Desert and now, you know, within North America where you're having a lot of child separation. Um, So these are, it's a statement, it's really important because it's not going to be, it's not anything really up you know, it's not new into the extent that it doesn't create new laws or new standards. It just creates, it reinforces the rights both of migrants and to have their human rights protected. And it, you know, 
reinforces the states to basically decide, you know, their 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 priorities for migration at the same time. And, and the uh, idea is that like the, the states are signing on to this document, so that suggests that they would then implement, you know, the the these provisions around like the rights of and and the the rights of child migrants, unaccompanied minors that are crossing borders. You know, if they sign this document and this document says that you have to treat unaccompanied minors so and so with with so and so, um, you know, legal protections and provisions, that they'll actually do so. Exactly. So, there's like another example you might you think that might like is, is like illustrative of how this um, compact like solves a problem. I mean, there's there are um, you know there there are there are certain, you know, objectives around um, ensuring um, safe return of of migrants. So, um, so now, um, you know, we've seen a lot of incidences where countries have just deported migrants, um, and um, under international law, you know, you you cannot. Um, return someone to a country if they're going to face certain risks of, you know, serious harm, irrepar- you know, irreparable harm or injury or human rights abuses. So this principle is, is, is already in international law, but specifically the compact has objectives to, to bring that obligation to life. So it says that we will commit before we return somebody um, and, you know, just do mass deportations of people to do an individual assessment to ensure that that person is not being returned to a situation where they may face some irreparable harm. I mean, we've heard stories. So an example is, you know, around the crisis, um, you know, that's, that's, I mean, the 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 challenges around the U.S. Mexico border right now. I was reading you know stories about migrants that have been deported, um, including women who are facing risk of you know gender based violence, and including a story about a woman who had been just deported and then she ended up getting murdered by her boyfriend. So this would create um, for countries that sign on, they say that, you know, activities that we can take and that we should take to address this is to ensure that there's an individual status, you know, an individual determination uh, before we return somebody. Um, Likewise, there's obligations in there for countries that are accepting uh, returning migrants um, to, you know, to, to work with um, uh, to work to ensure that those returnees are um, coming into conditions that are conducive for them to stay and not just to remigrate. So it, it creates obligations um, and not not binding obligations, but it lists out all the different activities that states can take to do that. Um, do, you, I so, wonder if you, do you think like the measure of success of a political document like this is uh, whether or not um, this this document or the fact that a country signed this document inspires them to sort of live up to its obligations. Like, certainly there are probably some countries that are going to sign it and just keep on keeping on, but there are probably others who see this as um, a, a moment that they need to sort of change how they uh, approach these questions of migration. The... the, the, the the document is not, I mean, for, first of all, countries don't sign on to it. It just, it will be endorsed um, broadly. And so 
I th- the most important thing is to make sure that countries that do endorse it are are held accountable. And that's where, again, it's non-binding. So the role what we've been discussing here as civil society is how can we as civil society members and how can the broader public hold our countries, our governments accountable to the principles in here with under, you know, all of the, all of the many, many activities that are in here are all, the single goal of them is to ensure that migration is safe, regular, and orderly. Um, And it's, they're all designed towards that end. So it's really important to to make sure that when people are migrating, they're doing so out of choice, not necessity, that they're doing so in a way that their human rights are recognized. All over the world today, we're seeing, um, the truth is even signatories to the 1951 Refugee Convention are not living up to their obligations. So I can't say that the endorsement of this document is going to is going to mean automatically that states start acting um, in compliance with any any binding obligations, let alone non-binding ones. Uh, so if that makes sense, I just mm-hmm. think, you know, the, it's up to govern. It's up to citizens themselves to hold their governments accountable to to uphold human rights um, and to, 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 to use governance in a way that, that, that promotes good management of migration and not bad management of migration. So the United States pulled out of the negotiations in, in crafting uh, the document last fall, um, which I, I suppose not to be uh, unexpected um, given the, the Trump administration's approach to migration issues uh, more broadly. Um but in recent weeks, um, you know, it seems that um, in certain corridors of Europe, this uh, pact, which, as you said, is, is non-binding and is sort of like just completely inoffensive, um, has riled some some uh, political parties and is causing some real sort of political damage, it seems, in, in certain quarters of Europe. You've had several countries, um, in mostly in Central and Eastern Europe, to sort of announce their, their non-participation. I guess I'm wondering, like, what do you make s- – or how do you make sense of what the reaction to this compact has been in uh, certain quarters in in Europe? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it, it was really um, it's, you know disappoint, not totally unexpected, given the politics in in some of these European countries now, and and several of those countries are you know had elections, are having elections. I think there were a couple of um, problems. Um, one, one thing we can look to is just how um, you know th- this issue has been politicized, in- including by countries that have, like the United States, who have have really upheld standards for you know rights of migrants in many ways and have no. always been very welcoming of migrants until recently. But there's until recently, so it's a political. It's this mischaracterization for people that are, you know, anti-migration, um, that uh, they have, unfortunately, what we see now, a common phenomena, is that they have mischaracterized what this document is. Yeah. And it's really, really frustrating when you when you read um, statements by um, elected officials mischaracterizing what this document actually says or does. So that's one problem. In Europe, I think what's what there has been a combination of problems. One is, you know, the, the same thing. You see politicization of the of of the anti-migrant you know movement and, and far right parties that have have said, you know, 
have, have politicized it. More importantly, there has been some confusion in some countries about what the document is and whether it needs to be debated in parliament. So um, countries went to send, sent their delegates to New York to negotiate the language of the compact. And the compact language was finalized in July after you know six sets of negotiations um, that were led by Switzerland and Mexico. And now some parliaments are saying, you know, we, we need to actually vote on this and we need to understand better what we are signing up to. Um, so, so that is, is really more of, you know, the way this issue has, um, even in, in, in countries where, you know, the governing party is in favor of it, you've seen um, other political parties able to call for parliamentary discussion of it and things like that. I mean, I think what's really ironic about you, you know, the truth is that, you know, in, in my view, the U.S., the, the, the statement they, the statements they've made indicated, you know, they were never going to sign on. When Australia was at the negotiations and negotiated in good faith, um, but then announced that it wasn't signing, it specifically called out the provision that says um, there's an objective that includes, you know, a a aspirational, um, you know, com commitment or aspirational just goal to end detention. Sure. Um, yeah. And and they have that's... a policy of locking up uh, people who try to, you know, Nauru. Yeah. Who tried to right. Exactly. So Australia. Country. Yeah. You know, that became a hot flash. We don't want to sign on any UN document that says we're going to work to end detention. And that was the, you know, that was their view. But now to have countries like, you know, Austria, um, you know, pull Bulgaria, out. That, Hungary, Bulgaria, that, Slovakia. That don't, but countries that don't practice detention, right? So it's not about detention anymore. It wasn't about like, oh, there's something specifically in here. These are countries that actually pretty much do everything, European countries that pretty much do, already do everything that's in there. Um, but it's been the politicization of it um, that, um, so, so they're not, there's nothing in here that's beyond what they're already doing, but they're just saying we're anti you know, we're anti-migration and we don't want to look like we're endorsing anything that, um, you know, people could misinterpret as promoting, you know, irregular migration. Yeah, there, it seems that these these political parties, mostly on, on the, the right in, in some of these countries, are just sort of using opposition to this non-binding agreement to sort of bolster their anti-migration bona fides and are sort of hammering uh, other political parties with it. There, I think the, the Economist has a great headline saying something like European governments in meltdown over an inoffensive migration compact. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, exactly. yeah. And, and then that's sort of the political dynamic at, at play. Um, I, I guess just to conclude, you know, earlier you said that, you know, most migration that happens, or maybe you didn't say that, say this, but um, it seems, I, I think this is true, that most migration, most international migration that happens is South-South migration. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's individuals moving from, you know, one country in Africa to another, or one country in South America to another, or one country in Asia to another. Um, is, is this where we'll see the impact of this compact more clearly? That's a really good question. I think that we will see implementation if 
if those countries are supported to implement it. I mean, one of the big challenges is that there is no money attached to this agreement. There is no um, I mean, they're going to, there is a capacity building mechanism that will be set up that includes, um, among other things, you know, a, a place for funding to help countries implement this and to build capacity of national governments to be able to, you know, f implement many of the provisions. Um, and right now we already see, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, money from wealthy countries going to improve border management in poor ones, right? So because they're trying to uh, make borders very hard and, and, and do a lot of border management for a lot of reasons. Um, so, but I think for South-South, it is, it's going to be um, important. I think there's, I mean, I think there are really good examples that could, could be used in, in the African region, for instance, um, around, you know, like ECOWAS in West Africa, they have a, you know, a free pass, like you can pass through borders because if you're a member of ECOWAS country, because they recognize that labor migration is the way that, that families that are poor, um, you know, through remittances support themselves. So it's really important to allow people to use labor migration to support their poor, you know, poor family members back home. And um, you can't deny the poorer countries in the world the opportunity to use migration as a way to help themselves, um, you know, contribute to sustainable development. I mean, it's really critical. Um, and, and this is what the compact is about, too, is unlocking the potential of migration to promote sustainable development in underdeveloped countries. So I think through, um, through cooperation and support, you will see a lot of really important implementation going on. I think a lot of the obligations around, you know, again, documentation and not, um, you've seen instances where people just get deported. Um, you know, it happens in the North and in the South. I think these will all be really, it, it will be very important that these get implemented in, 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 you know, the regional South as well. Uh, well, Alice, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Alice. That was helpful, useful, and uh, kind of set the record straight on a lot of the misinformation that is being spread about this compact, uh, mostly in kind of right-wing anti-immigrant circles. A big thank you to all of those of you who are premium subscribers and have unlocked all your benefits. You can go to the uh, Patreon page of globaldispatchespodcast.com to, uh, to, to sign up for those benefits and become a premium subscriber. And a big thank you to all of you who have done that. And finally, a uh, shout out to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for being a content partner with this podcast. Expect a new episode from that content partnership coming up very soon. I'm excited for that one. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.